1 Corinthians chapter 11, and as you make your way there, I do want to express thanks for our session for a time of rest, and uh, on the 21st, we'll uh, give you more details if you, you want them, uh, but we are excited for a season of rest and excited to return uh, back here. It's really sweet when um, we can come to the table today and the passage that we're looking at this morning is about coming to the table correctly. It's a sweet kindness when uh, the Lord providentially lines these things up. And if you're new to Redeemer, we partake of the supper on the first Sunday of every month. And we all always send you a reminder. And, um, but this passage really does shape a lot of our practices. You'll notice here that the Bible does not prescribe how often a church should partake of the supper. Notice what Paul says here in our text. He says in verse 26, as often as you do this. Uh, and so it seems to me that the scripture is saying that churches have freedom uh, in terms of frequency. But what's also embedded is uh, there's a command that we, this will be a part of the worship of a church. You'll also notice here that there's a refrain, when you come together, you see it in verse 17, uh, it's repeated five times in this section. And this is important because in Paul's mind, the sacraments, uh, the supper, was not meant to be taken alone by yourself. That, that this section in 1 Corinthians 11 through 14, it's all happening in the context of their worship. And so um, this idea that the sacrament itself is a communal sign and seal, which is to be done together when we gather together, that's also here. And it's possible using Paul's language in verse 27 to come to the table in an unworthy manner. But we have to make an important distinction. No one is truly worthy of the supper. In fact, the supper demands that we name our unworthiness. However, it is possible to come to the table unworthily, un incorrectly. And that's what Paul is pushing against. It's a corrective both for the Corinthians and for us. How do we come to this king's table correctly? And so that's what I want us to think about uh, as we read the passage. 1 Corinthians 11, we'll start at verse 17 and read through verse 34. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you might be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One of you goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do, you not or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, 
you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let every person examine himself. Then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats or drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some of you have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Amen. Let's pray. Father, build us up through your word. Your word is truth. We ask that you would sanctify us by it. Lord, your word is good for the soul. It is a warning. It is a corrective. It is a treasure. It is a compass. It is light. It is nourishment. And so, Father, I pray that you will use your word by your spirit as we exalt your son to allow us, Lord, to receive the full blessings of the table. Do this, Lord, for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's a book that I'm, I'm working through, and it's called A Pattern Language, and it's right over there. It's about yay thick, and it is a really important book in architecture and city and urban planning. And the book really is about 253 patterns or things to consider when you're building a thriving community. I will not bore you with the details, but suffice it to say that there are things in the book like it matters which way your home is built for natural light. It matters when you're building a city to think about the poor and where the homeless might frequent. It matters when you're building a city or building a home that you have places for people to gather and places for people to be alone. The person is no good in public who cannot nourish and be alone in private. It talks about all of these beautiful things about architecture and planning and buildings and parks. And there's, there are these strange chapters in there that, that, and they make a case that, that one of the most important things in the fabric of a flourishing community is a place for communal meals. They talk about designing your kitchen and a farmhouse table and having restaurants that allow cultures to overlap, that allows people to connect. They go on to write, the importance of communal eating is clear in all human societies and civilizations. Very few things have the power to bind us like food and drink. A feast draws people to itself and it makes them leave everything in order to participate in its joy. Think about meals and the role that they play in your life. You may not remember it, but at one point you probably nursed on your mother's breast or someone prepared formula and warmed it up. And every time you nursed, it communicated safety and intimacy. 
Think about your mom and dad who worked tirelessly to put food on the table day in and day out. Think about grandma who was shelling peas and shucking corn to put a pot on in her already hot kitchen, in her already hot house, and it was a labor of love to serve you. Think about being a kid and going into the cafeteria for the first time, and you saw hundreds of students, and you felt anxiety because you didn't know where you'd sit. And then someone says, hey, you, you sit with me. Think about going on that date when you knew that the person that you were sitting across with would be your spouse. It was likely over a meal where you had their undivided attention. Think about your wedding if you were married and the precious vows you made. And after that, there was food and dancing and more food and more dancing. Think about countries at war and all of a sudden their leaders sit down at a table and have a meal and the war comes to an end. Meals matter. Think about sitting around the table and your seat that you sit in every time you eat together and you laugh and you joke and you play board games and you pray and you do your devotion and you receive your food with thanks. Meals matter. Meals matter to us, beloved, because meals matter to God. The Bible really is, without being reductionistic, a story about food. It begins with God giving Adam and Eve access to eat of any tree. And the scriptures also begin with God in Genesis 3, walking among them in the cool of the day. So put the image together. Eat, and then I'm going to be near you. And think about how the Bible ends in the book of Revelation. It ends with the marriage supper of the Lamb, where a table is stretched out, and we're going to sit across from one another and next to one another, and there will be people from every nation and tribe and tongue. We're going to sit down next to David and Moses and Shadrach, we're going to sit next to Jesus and saints coming after us. And then the doors will swing open and we will enter into the joy of our master forever. The Bible ends with a meal. And in between the beginning and the, and the end, there are all of these meals, the, the, the feast of first fruits, right? What is that about? The feast of Passover, the feast of booze, but like all in the Jewish calendar were meals, were meals where God will say, no matter where you live, you must come down to my appointed place and you must feast together. Now here's what's so beautiful, and I think we miss it in Deuteronomy 14 and 16, God actually says, you're to go to my desired place. But here's a refrain that, that I think we ought to be leaping out of our seats when we read it. You're going to eat these meals before me. What? Not just have a meal in Jerusalem. Have a meal in Jerusalem before me, with me. What? Do you see 
Why would God say that? Because he loves us and he wants to be in communion with us. You've had kids that have gone off and you know what it's like when they come home. You just want to put a pot of gumbo on. You just want to cook and have a meal together. What if I told you that's what God is like? I just want you with me. So when they were eating these meals, it communicated God's longing and nearness, but it also communicated something else. All of these mercies and promises and goodnesses of the Lord, he didn't want them to just stay in your mind. He wanted you to ingest them, chew grace, smell mercy, touch steadfast love, linger around my excellencies through the table. And they also showcase our connectedness. None of those feasts were ever to be done alone. God says, wherever you are, you come home. If you were a widow making the journey alone, it reminded you that you're not alone, that you have a family. You're a part of something bigger, right? All of this is in meals. And until we understand that theology of eating and fellowship and table and feasting with God and with one another, you have no idea why Paul is so upset in this passage. You see, only when you understand the significance of eating together in the Bible can you understand why Paul is so frustrated that they're doing it poorly. And that's what I want us to look at this morning. You might remember last week, Paul says, you can see it in verse 11, chapter 11, verse 2. Now I commend you because you remember me. So in, in verse 2, he commends them because they're trying to wrestle out how do man and woman relate in worship. And, the, and they got the heart of the matter right. Like, like there is no slave, there is no free, there is no man, there is no woman. We're one in Christ. They're, they're getting that right, but they're, but they're getting something wrong about it. They're blurring gender distinctions. And so Paul is actually saying man and woman are equal, but you're different and you're interdependent. So notice the commendation. Now notice the completely flip of script in this passage. Look at verse 17, but in the following instructions, I cannot commend you, right? Look at verse 22, the end of it. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Do you understand the difference? I can commend you a little on that and maybe correct that a little bit, but this right here is completely wrong. You are completely wrong with how you are approaching the king's table. And it's a warning. And so I want to look at it under three headings. And I th just remember the goal, beloved, is to help us come to the table correctly in a way that honors Jesus, in a way that honors the sacrament, in a way that opens up the manifold blessings of communing with God at table. That's where this is going but before you get there, Paul is concerned. And that's what I want to look at. The first thing is Paul's concern 
but they're coming to the table incorrectly. I'm looking at verses 17 through 22. Now, at this point in the church history, they would not have met in a building like this. Jesus says the church will be like a mustard seed. That will, the kingdom of God will be like a mustard seed that starts small and then it grows and grows and grows. And we've seen that play out in history. It started and located in the Greco-Roman world and in Israel and then to Greece and all of these other places. And now Christianity has sort of blossomed everywhere, right? That's by design. But in its infancy, you didn't have these big buildings for Christians to gather. You gather in the homes of believers. And so Acts and 1 Corinthians and Ephesians, they tell us what Christians did when they gathered, right? We know that they gathered in each other's homes. We know that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and we know they devoted themselves to the prayers. We also know that they, they practiced baptism in the home during the context of, of the, the gathering of the saints. We also know that the Lord's Supper is a part of this. And there's also some things that we're trying to figure out. Tongues was a part of it, and prophecy was a part of it, that when the saints gathered, that is the shape of their worship. Now, here's the, the hard part. Because they're gathering in homes, you also have household codes for hospitality that are laying on top of their gatherings. Now, Jesus talks about this in Luke 14. He says, when you go to a feast and, you, and, and, and Jesus went and saw it, he saw what they were doing. They were jockeying for places of honor. And so imagine in Jesus's day, there's this formal dining room, less formal spaces in atrium. But if you ate formally, you went into this room. I won't give you the Latin name for it, but there's a U-shaped table and you would recline instead of sitting. And right at the tip of the U, at the bottom of the U in the middle, that's the seat of honor. And what Jesus noticed, he went into this, this party and everyone was trying to not sit on these edges of the U. They were trying to get here next to the seat of honor. And then Jesus told his disciples, hey, don't you do that. You don't have to jockey for honor and status in the world. I give you honor. He says, maybe when you sit at the least honorable seat, maybe even in another room, maybe your friend will summon you up, right? So he's telling them, don't practice hospitality like the world. And that's problematic because it reads as if because they're in a house church and because they're faction and their divisions, that when you put the church inside of a home, that some were letting the culture shape how they practice fellowship. And did you notice what Paul says? Some of you get drunk. And some of you, you don't get to eat. And some of you go get seconds and you get thirds. And then the least honorable people, they walk away with nothing. Now, how could that happen? The only way that happens is if they're letting the hospitality codes of the world come inside the church. And so I did a two hour Zoom call with Dr. Hurley about these passages. I said, Doc, just dump it on me. And he was so kind to me. And we got to this passage and he said, yeah, I, I think we know what's going on. That in Paul's day, there was no official 
Sabbath that was recognized by the government. And so we take it for granted that we work Monday through Friday. We get Saturday and Sunday off and Paul's day. That, that, was, that, that was not true. And he says it's likely that the poorest among them could not afford to take off. And so they had to get their work done and then get to service. And it's likely that they were poor and did not have anything to bring. And when they came to service, they came with nothing. And because of the household codes that you have seats of honor, seats where the wealthy sit and you sit in the room and you sit at the tip of the U and everybody who are who are more honorable than you, they get seats. And if you were poor, you might get put in the atrium or you might get put in another room. And guess who got first and seconds and thirds? And guess who got left out? It's very likely that that's what's happening here. They're letting the culture creep into the church. And some are drunk. Some go without anything. And the language here Paul uses, he says right here, you're humiliating those who have nothing. That's the same word from the earlier parts of the chapter where Paul says, Woman, you dishonor your head. Husband, you dishonor your head. Now the dishonoring is a humiliation that's not between man and woman. This humiliation seems to be around class and honor. The Corinthians thought the gospel was more like Delta Airlines when in fact it has more in common with Southwest. So I fell in love with Southwest Airlines when I fell in love with that woman. And she was in Florida and I was in Ohio. And we kind of vowed that we would see each other fairly regularly during our engagement. And I think I bought one or two tickets on Delta and I was like, babe, I, I, I can't afford this right here. We can't keep doing this. And we discovered Southwest. All I had to do was drive 90 miles from Ohio down to Louisville, and we could jump on Southwest. And Southwest was awesome. It was cheaper. And guess what? When you got on Southwest, it ain't no special seats. You sitting next to whomever. And when they brought out the food, you didn't get your food before me. We ate the same thing at the same time, and we're sitting next to one another like what, right? I flew Delta first class a couple years ago, and y'all might remember it. Karen's uncle passed, and we had her mom and sister and great aunts, and it was no way that I could let them drive to Detroit and so y'all, you all, the elders, let me at the time, I literally drove up to Detroit on a Thursday in a van, did the funeral on Saturday, and flew back down to Jackson after the funeral, preached here, and then flew back to Detroit after I preached, and then drove them back down, right? That was kind of what we had to do, and I was gifted a ticket by a former student who worked for Delta. And I did not know that it was a first class ticket. And so I walk in there and I got a first class ticket. 
and I boarded before everybody. My luggage bin was like this. My seat, it wasn't this. It was like this. And the food that we ate, it wasn't what the peasants ate in the back. <laughs> they, brought, they brought out pillows and they brought out blankets and headphones. And then they did this number. The lady went behind us and she closed the curtains. She closed the curtains. And I'm telling you, that is dangerous, y'all. Y'all should have, like, my little pride was like on fire. I'm like, I'm special. Every one of y'all look at me. I belong up here, right? And I haven't flown first class since. <laughs> That's what the Corinthians were doing, y'all. They thought the gospel was like Delta, where some of y'all got more honor and more dignity, and you get fed first, and you come in, and you got a lot of space, and we send the peasants in the back, and they must wait. They must sit near the restroom and sit near the engine where that seat is hotter. And Paul is saying, ain't none of y'all more special than the other. We all on the plane, and I don't care what you got, your worthiness is in Jesus. Right? They got it wrong, and that's what he's calling out. Now, we work against that at Redeemer. First, you can't get drunk off of grape juice. <laughs> Come on, like you, you just, you can drink all of it. You will get sick, but we're not using real wine. And the, the little bread that we give you, that, that is not meant to fill your stomach, right? We ask that you all wait and take it together. We don't have assigned seats in here. You can sit anywhere you want. We're pushing against some of that here. But here's the thing. There is a sin beneath the sin that I think we have to say, okay. And their sin, I've already named it, is letting the way the world relates to one another come inside of here and permeate the way that we relate. And that's what we have to push against. And so we can take the supper unworthily by treating the supper just like the world does. The world, they ain't thinking about the bread and the wine. And if the Lord's Supper is that small in your mind and that unimportant, you are taking it unworthily. You can take it unworthily by doing it by yourself. You can take it unworthily by looking too much at yourself and not what it points to. You can take it unworthily in all of those ways. And what Paul wants to do is to call that out, which moves us to the second point. Paul calls them to remember the seriousness and the sweetness of the supper. Now, remember, he's on the path to help us come correctly. You can come in correctly. It's kind of his first point. His second point, I want you to remember the seriousness and the sweetness of the supper. Let's start with the seriousness of the supper. Look at verse 27. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of concerning the body and blood of the Lord. 
Verse 29, for anyone who eats or drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Verse 30, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the world. Now notice the, the, the seriousness. Verse 27 begins, whoever. In a world where they were jockeying for honor, Paul cuts through it and says, look, whoever. And I don't care who you are. I don't care how long you've been a Christian. I don't care who your daddy is. I don't care how you came to faith. I don't care how much money you have. Whoever, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty. That, that's the first thing. That's a warning that you are, are, that God is not a respecter of persons. Second, I think we have some David and Bathsheba and Nathan type stuff going on. All right, you remember David sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah with his adultery. And you remember that he thought he was okay. He had just kind of done this thing and things were okay. And then the Lord sent Nathan the prophet and Nathan the prophet told him a parable. And then Nate, David was cut to the heart when the Lord raised up a prophet to show him what he had done wrong. It feels like the same thing is going on here. Here's what I mean. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's going to talk about some of the Corinthians who have died. And then in this passage, he talks about some other Corinthians who are sick and weak, who also have died. And this is where I think Paul's apostolic light bulb goes off. He makes a connection. Hold up. Tell me, who died? Tell me, who's sick? Who's weak? Okay. Now tell me, who's the ringleader architecturing the Lord's Supper? Whose house did this take in? Who's behind it? And then Paul's light bulb goes off. I see the connection. The same people trampling over the Lord's Supper are the same people that are dead now and some are dying. Do you see the seriousness of the supper? And this could be mysterious. We have a God who makes Nebuchadnezzar lose his mind and go insane. We have a God who brings supernatural sickness and calamity upon people in the Bible. And that same God could be doing the same thing around the supper. Or it could be what David Garland says, that the same God hands these people over. The one who is getting drunk and intoxicated, God may say, okay, have your way with alcohol. Let it do its course on you because you are living in rebellion. You who are gluttonous and eating and, and desiring preferential treatment, I'm going to remove my restraining grace and you have your way. 
And Garland also says it could be that the converse is true, that because there is an overabundance and overeating and overdrinking, that you could really have poor people in the congregation who don't have food and who don't have drink. And so now you have these people ringleading this dying because of their excesses and it's causing harm upon these people over here who are not getting needs met and it's happening in the church. And I think we got to fight against something. When I read this, I, something in me wants to say you're not like that. That you're loving and merciful and kind and slow to anger and abounding with steadfast love. What I want to do is minimize what's right here, but we can't say we believe the whole counsel of the Lord and erase his fatherly discipline from it. People really died and people really got sick. And you know why? It's because they continued in their sin and rebellion. And what God seems to be saying, my discipline right now to bring you home is far better than you going to hell forever. And that's big. Do you see what Paul is doing? That if we're going to come correctly to the supper, we got to understand that this is serious. But, beloved, it's also sweet. And he wants them to remember it. He wants them to go back. Look at it in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And, and, and they would have known. They would have known that what Paul was doing was pointing them back to Passover, pointing them back to that night in Jerusalem on the night of the Passover when, God, when Jesus had Passover with his disciples. And he would have known what, they, what, what, what state of mind they would have been in. They would have been remembering the Exodus. They would have been remembering the nine plagues that impacted Egypt and then they would have been remembering, but wait, God, I think I thought we got a pass. Yeah, you got a pass on one through nine, but you don't get a pass on 10. I'm coming through on this night. And firstborn sons will die. And this is one plague that will impact you if you don't obey me and trust me. I want you to take a lamb and I want you to offer him up. And I want you to cook him and eat him. And I want you to take his blood and put it over your doorpost. And if you're poor and you can't afford one, you go next door to your neighbor and you let them in and you go in their house and you celebrate it with them. And that night when the angel of death marches, if you have trusted me and you have shown your trust by doing this, I will pass over you. One will die in your place that you might be passed over. 
And on that night, Jesus dressed himself for service. And on that night, Jesus bent down and took off his outer garments. On that night, Jesus washed his disciples' feet. On that night, Jesus ate with them. On that night, Jesus took the bread and took the cup. On that night, Jesus held up the bread. This is my body that's going to be given for you. On that night, Jesus held the cup. This is the cup of the new covenant that's going to be sealed in my blood. And what Paul wants them to do is remember the sweetness of the gospel. On that night, he bent down and he took off his outer garments because the next day they're going to take off his clothes and beat him naked. On that night, he bent down and washed their feet with water. Because the next day, he's going to be strung out on a cross and his blood will be shed to wash you of your sin. On that night, he ate. But on the next day, he's going to say, I thirst. And the key to this text is the interplay between my and you. He says, my body for you. My blood for you. And the you there is not you as an individual. It's for you. Oh, what Paul is saying, go back to that room and remember the goodness of this God in this gospel. And that is what's being enacted in front of you. The body of the Messiah was put on a tree to bring those who ate of the wrong tree back to the table of the Father. The blood of the Messiah was shed to wash us of our filth and sin and shame, to clean us up, to bring us back. The greatest price for access to this table cannot be bought with your money. It's bought with the precious life and blood of Jesus. And this is why bitterness in the body is incompatible with the gospel. This is why withholding forgiveness in the body is incompatible with the gospel. This is why coming here, knowing that there is tension between you and a believer and pretending like you're okay and that there is no rupture is incompatible with the gospel because God calls us to forgive, right? He calls us to mend. This is why partiality is incompatible. This is why not waiting is incompatible because we have a God who waits. This is why all of these ways and which we can profane the supper is incompatible because in the gospel we have a God who does the unimaginable. Paul wants them to remember the supper is serious. He wants you to ingest mercy. He wants you to proclaim and remember that Christ has come, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ is returning again. There is a shelf life on all of your grief and all of your sorrows and all of your sin. This is why looking after our own interests 
is incompatible with the gospel is because Christ looked after ours. Which moves us to the last point. Once we wrestle with the fact that we can all come incorrectly, once we wrestle and see that the table is serious, but also sweet, then you get to Paul's commands. And this order is so important. You see, Paul does here what Paul does everywhere. Paul never says, hey, you're behaving like a sinner. Get it together. That's not how the gospel works, is it? You're behaving like a sinner. This is what Jesus has done. This is who Jesus is. Now believe and respond accordingly. If you get the order wrong, you're missing the thrust of Pauline writing, right? But the gospel says, yes, I'm wrong. Yes, Jesus has done everything. Now by faith, I can obey him. And that's how the commandments fit in this passage. They fit at the end. Paul says, know your sin, know your God, and then respond accordingly. And so what are the commands? What's in the imperative in this section? He says, first, Let everyone examine himself in verse 28. That's a command. Examine yourself, every one of us. Not you doing it for your spouse. You and I as individuals examine your own self. Where am I not believing the gospel? Where have I not loved you, Lord, with my heart and my soul and my mind and my strength? Where have I not loved my neighbor? I want to own that. I want to see. I want to sense my need, and it's okay. Examine yourself. What's the next thing? Remember Jesus. Take one look at yourself and a thousand looks at the cross. Be not like the Pharisee who tried to justify himself before God with all of his good deeds. Be like the tax collector. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then remember and preach it into your bones and into your hearts that the Son of God came not for the righteous. He came for the sinners and flee to the cross and then eat the bread remembering his body was given for you drink the blood remembering that it was shed for you and what are the blessings of doing this beloved remember when Israel told God told Israel when you come to your feast they are before me And when we come to this table, it's before Jesus. He is here by faith, spiritually, to feed your soul and to pour out assurance, pour out mercy, to give you a peace of conscience. He is here. We might serve it but he's the chef. But how else does it benefit us? And I've been wrestling with this. Here's where we can use our imagination. 
Paul said that they were taking the supper improperly and some of them were sick and weak and had died. Is it beyond the realm of possibility that the converse is true? That when we come to the table, remembering the sweetness and the sacredness, judging ourselves, putting ourselves at the mercy of God, could the converse be true? Could the same sacrament that will afflict your body if mistaken, can that same sacrament invigorate your soul if taken by faith? We who are weak and tripping and stumbling, we come to the table and God makes us strong. We who are on the brink of dying spiritually, we come to the table by faith and God raises us up. We who are having a hard time in our mind and our hearts comprehending why it is that we do what we ought not do and the good things we want to do, we cannot do, but we come to the table and plead mercy. Could it be that God meets us right here and says, look, I'm going to give you enough grace to make it through this next week and this next day and this next month and I'm going to be right here next time waiting on you could it be that when we partake of the supper by faith the right way that it restores our souls may that be the case let's pray father we bless you and we thank you for your word make us a people who come to your table The blessings of your table are manifold. We proclaim that you're returning. We're reminded that we're not alone. We take the supper together. We experience you and the joy of your salvation. And you strengthen and build us up. Do this, I pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.